Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, and thank you very much for joining me today as we talk with Lydia Netzer, author of How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky, out this year, which is 2014, from St. Martin's Press. Um, But before I formally introduce Lydia, let me pause and celebrate a few changes here at the podcast. If you've listened before, you may have realized that we have some new theme music, and we have composer Michael Aaron to thank for it. Uh, He lives online at quivernyc.com, so if you want to hear more of his music, pay him a visit there. And we have another creative Michael to thank today, designer and web interactive specialist Michael Thibodeau, who's created our new logo and also the banner across the top of our homepage. There's a link on our site at newbooksinsciencefiction.com to his website. So if you want to see more of his cool work, pay him a visit. So I've just a shout out to both Michaels. Thank you so much for uh, your, your help and your support and your creativity. And listeners, feel free to drop me a line to tell me if you like the logo and music. Not that I'm going to do anything with that information since I love them both, but I'd be very curious to hear your reactions. And, uh, and of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever good podcasts uh, are these days. Don't want you to be missing any, any of our podcasts. So now let me introduce our guest today. Lydia Netzer is the author of How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky, which came out in July. Her first book, Shine, 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 made the New York Times book reviews list of 100 notable books of 2012, which I think is just so, so cool. So, Lydia, thank you so much for joining me for a conversation about your book and your writing. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, so maybe we could start off uh, with you telling listeners a little bit about the plot of uh, How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky. I I wonder, you know, when when you came up with the idea, how did you describe it to your agent or your editor, that might be a good way to kind of uh, give the plot summary. Well, it's interesting you ask because I I pitch it differently to different people. Um, If I'm pitching to someone who's more interested in kind of the women's fiction side of the world, I'll say it's about two friends who raise up their children to be soulmates for each other and then orchestrate their meeting and then the madcap zany antics that ensue after these two young people who believe themselves to be soulmates find that, find out that it's all a scheme of their mothers. But if I'm pitching it to a more science-minded type person, I uh, would say it's about science versus fate. And it's, a, it's an examination of what love is um, in terms of the mechanisms of the mind. It's about memory and dreams and how, how we perceive those as different from reality or as the same as reality. It's about the game world and how that plays into our memories and our and our lives. And uh, ultimately, it's my examination of love from a perspective of a scientific person who doesn't believe in it. And it's set at the Toledo Institute of Astronomy, 
which is a world-renowned mecca of learning and culture right in Toledo, Ohio. And in my Toledo, astronomers and mathematicians walk arm-in-arm arm down the street and discuss philosophy and cosmology. And there are star cruises down, Lake, uh, down the Maumee River. And, you know, it's kind of, it's a, it's a little different from, it's, a, it's an exaggerated form of real Toledo. Uh, but it's kind of like my idea of the math science playground for Americans. Or maybe it's a little bit what uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez might have done with Toledo. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if Toledo had entered his consciousness, like our, our Toledo, Ohio had entered his consciousness in any way, yeah, maybe he might have given it a similar treatment. <laughs> well, so let's let's explore since you've described these two kinds of pitches, and I think the second one kind of fits the audience for the new books in science fiction and fantasy, which is maybe the little more science-minded, but also, you know, interested in exploring the juxtaposition or the relationship between science and and fantasy. And I mean, I think you 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 bring that right to the fore with the juxtaposition in the story of you have astronomers mm -hmm. who are the the main characters, these children who are don't realize it, but they've been raised to be soulmates, and their mothers who are ostensibly astrologers, and you sort of bring these two together. I mean, that's kind of unusual to have the science of astronomy and the, I don't know what you'd call it, the fantasy science or the art, maybe, of astrology uh, together in the same story. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, about why you decided to bring those together, and, and was that a hard thing to do, or what were you exploring? Well, I I think that the uh, philosophy and astronomy used to not be that different. You know, it w used to be kind of art and astronomy and religion and our belief system were all connected, and... Uh, we experienced kind of a fracture during the Enlightenment where it became um, like this is the, you know, hoodoo, voodoo, religion-y kind of astrology thing where you, you know, have crystals and labyrinths and stuff like that. And then this is like the data-driven science side of things where um, you measure and, and there are facts and um, photographs and stuff instead of art and belief on the other side. And I think both of those both of those aspects of our way of looking at the stars are exist in every person to some extent too, you know. And part of why I was interested in writing this book is because I'm I'm a very science-minded person myself. I like facts and everything, you know. I like knowledge and and yet um when I when I fell in love with my husband, it was uh, the most ridiculous, like, romantic lightning bolt 30 seconds into having seen him, I knew I was going to marry him. And it, I didn't realize how much that bothered me, kind of, until I got, until I got deeply into this book, and I was kind of, I was wrestling with this idea of, like, is love something that you can manipulate and control? Is love a choice that you make? to perpetuate the species and for a solid family unit and you're looking for someone with like characteristics that will make a solid match, which is what I've always believed as an intelligent person. Um, or is, is there some mystical element to it? Uh, you know, like the kind of romantic love that 
originated in, you know, these kind of French chivalric romance novels in like 1600s or something where um, suddenly we have lutes playing and birds chirping and, you know, hearts in people's eyes and, you know, is there something to that? Because I guess I can't fully deny it because it happened to me. So I had this kind of like Saul on the road to Damascus moment with my cynicism over love and romance. And then I had to kind of grapple with that and decide, you know, where, where, would, where do I fall in these? So the, the astronomy versus astrology thing, it's just an external manifestation, I guess, of that inner conflict of faith versus science or, you know, belief versus reason or however you want to put it. Um, and it's, it, I, I kind of liked imagining them as these warring factions. Within Toledo, there's the Institute of Astronomy where, of course, everything's very serious and fact-driven and scientific. And, um, and then there's this kind of weird swamp life going on in, in the outskirts of Toledo. Toledo's um, surrounded by the Black Swamp, now, you know, drained and farmable and everything. But that, that there would be these kind of witches and weirdos out in the swamps, um, this kind of counterculture to the science part of the city. And I, I just thought that was fun. It was fun setting that up, and it worked to bring that conflict into reality. And it's interesting because none of the characters really are 100% one way or the other, it seems to me. Even the, the mothers who are plotting and, uh, you know, practicing astrology are actually, it seems almost being scientific in their approach to this matchmaking where they're right. um, working on f having them taste similar foods as infants and right. planting memories of little songs and things that will make them feel like they're soulmates when they, when they re-meet later in life. Right. And then the scientists, even my most cynical, hard-nosed, no-nonsense scientist who's Irene, my female character is... I kind of wanted to do like a gender reversal a little bit where you normally have the guy is like all buttoned up and straight laced and, you know, I, I just do work and think business things and science and facts and spreadsheets. And then the girl comes along and she's like, I fry bacon in my underwear and I don't know why I'm sitting on the roof and I magically open up your eyes to a new way of looking at the world. So I kind of wanted to flip that around a little bit. And my no-nonsense scientist is my girl. And um, she is as, uh, as straight-laced and controlled as they come, personally, philosophically, sexually, every kind of way. And, um, but she can, she can dream lucidly, and she can control her dreams, and she can meet people in her dreams. And this is something that was kind of inflicted on her by her mother, her wacky-woo mother at an early age taught her how to control her dreams and visit people in their dreams. So even she is this kind of bastion of reason, and um, the, the least romantic person in the world has this element of, uh, you know, she has to believe in the spirituality because she can do it.
let's talk about that lucid dreaming, actually. Sure. That's something I'm, I mean, I'm familiar with the idea of having a lucid dream to mean you realize you're dreaming and you're able to kind of manipulate the scenario. Right. But you take it a step further where, as you say, you know, she can actually meet people in their in her dreams, you know, make a plan to say, well, when you fall asleep and I fall asleep, I mean, the mothers do that and they meet in their dreams and they actually have conversations that are, are real conversations. So I just wonder where that idea came from. And, and do you have lucid dreams? Well, part of the reason that I, I wanted to play, I wanted to play with both the dream world and the game world um, because I was interested in how our brains record memories. So I was a gamer in the 90s. Like, I lost several magical years to playing MUDs and StarCraft and stuff like that. Um, and I, I realize now, uh, years later, that I remember visually, even text-based games that I played in the 90s, like, I can remember the places I was and the things I saw and the objects I interacted with in a very visual way. And it's uh, like much more clearly than I remember where I physically was <laughs> in those years. Like I was in graduate school. I don't really remember my office that well, but I do remember like the dwarf forest and stuff like that. Uh, so, and I also remember dreams very clearly. Some dreams, you know, there are those dreams that stick out to you or you remember them, um, and your brain kind of privileges those visuals over real stuff that happened. It's always kind of bugged me that I can't remember with, like, blistering clarity everything I've ever experienced because I feel like I was there, my brain took in that information, and and I've read a lot about how you don't actually take in all the information you think you're taking in or whatever, but it still, it still fascinates me that I remember games better than I remember real life sometimes or dreams. And a lot of people say, well everyone skips the dream sequences or don't read the dream sequences, you know, or if it was all a dream, that's just cheating. And I kind of feel like saying, you know, if you're skipping the dream sequences so you can get to the real part of this book, do you realize the whole thing is a novel? <laughs> you're actually holding a, a piece of fiction in your hands, something that I made up in my head. So dreams, reality, game, it's all basically nonsense. That's very funny. That's a great that's a great point. And also we spend a lot of our lives dreaming, so why is it any less real than I mean in terms of if if our if every moment of our life has value, why don't the 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 dreaming parts, you know, have a, an equivalent value? Well, there's in in a sense the the reason they're not those mo those times are not valued is because they only exist for us. It's something that we typically cannot share with anyone else. So because it's a completely individual experience, we don't hold it in as high regard as we do stuff that we can share with other people. I think that's why. That's a that's a, a reasonable point, although also our experiences are unique. I mean, you and I could be in the same room and see the same thing and report a different experience. Yeah, and I, and I do think that that's, I don't necessarily think that that's rational, that we, just because I'm the only one that sees it or does it, doesn't mean, you know, that it's not the most important thing. But some people do feel, I mean, some people outside my book feel like in reality think they can meet inside dreams and they, there are dream circles where they all go to bed and then they meet up at a agreed upon location and they go out and have adventures together. And I mean, I've never done that, but I, 
I know people who have and who, you know, to talk about it and they have meetings, you know, so it must be real. <laughs> they have meetings. Wow. Um, wow. That sounds great. I tried to do that with a friend once, but we only tried it once. Maybe you need to really practice it. Well, I've been trying to practice, since I started writing this book about lucid dreaming, I've been trying to practice lucid dreaming. And there's all these little, I mean, if you Google it and, and look for how can I take control of my dreams or whatever, there's all these ways that you can do it. And I've, I've virtuously, earnestly tried for months. And I managed to, one time, uh, I realized I was dreaming and I was able to move a crate of lettuce closer to me in a dream grocery store, which was incredibly disappointing as an outcome. Like, oh, you've managed to control your subconscious and all you're going to do is make it easier to buy produce. Like, what is this for? Did it um, did it levitate towards you, or did you reach your hand out and pull it closer? I just kind of reached for it, and it came to me, because I realized, I was like, oh, I can't reach the lettuce, and then it's like, I'm dreaming, I can reach this lettuce, and then I could reach it. Like, that's the extent of it. And then another time I was able to, um, I had the naked dream that everyone has, you know, like I'm in the grocery store and I'm naked. Apparently all my dreams are in grocery stores. Anyway, uh and I was like, oh, I'm dreaming. I can close myself. So I looked down at myself and dreamed myself into clothes. And what I dreamed myself into was a gray unitard. <laughs> the, the worst, again, it's like on the, on the magnitude of moving a lettuce crate. It's like, oh, I dreamed myself a gray unitard. The most unflattering thing anyone could ever wear. Thanks, Dream World. Yeah, it wasn't a ball gown. No, it was the opposite of ball gown. And then one other time I could fly. I because flying is always the thing. Like you, like flying is the every lucid dreamer or everyone who's trying to learn how to lucid dream. They want to fly because flying is the thing you can't do in real life. Like a lot of people will say, "Well, you could have sex with whoever you wanted." You know, if you're in a dream world and. You, you could take control of your dreams. You could just have sex, and it would be so great. It's like, you know, you can have sex here in reality. That's not, you know, supernatural. You can just have sex with someone. But flying now, flying you really can't do. So if you get yourself to where you can lucid dream, flying is like the holy grail of lucid dreamers. Um, so I was able to try to fly one time, and I managed to get myself off the ground except for my head. <laughs> Ooh. Which I'm sure has no metaphorical significance whatsoever. I'm sure that's totally meaningless. I mean, your feet were going up in the air, but your head was... Mm, yeah, my head down. became very heavy and just would refuse to fly. So, yeah, that's the extent. And then uh, I just, I don't know if I gave up or I got distracted or what happened, but those were my three big triumphs of lucid dreaming, pathetic as they may be. Well, maybe you'll start something here. People will read the book and a lot of people will try it and they'll all meet you in your dreams and thank you for writing, you know, such an inspiring book. <laughs> Great. So you said two things in your author's note that I thought were interesting. And one was that second novels are hard to do. Uh, and the other one was that you said you had whined about making revisions. Yeah. And I, I kind of thought maybe those two comments might actually go hand in hand. And I thought maybe, well, I was wondering if you wanted to elaborate on what you were feeling after your first book was received with such critical acclaim. And then you had to, or decided to sit down and write a second book and how that impacted you. It, it's the, the second book 
um, is tough because, you know, kind of if you think about yourself on a Cartesian plane and your first book is like a point, you know, and it maybe it's a big point. Maybe it makes it has a high impact and it's it's a nice, firm, strong point on this on this graph. And your second book has to you have to move in a direction, you know. So your second book is going to be a second point on the graph. And where you place that book determines everything about, it seems like at, when you're in the middle of it, it's just going to determine everything about your career at the, for the rest of your life, you know. Because the first book is a point. The second book is like a vector now, you know. Like now you're moving in a direction. And then your third book is either going to be on that same vector or you're going to diverge from your, you know, your brand or whatever. So the, the second book, I guess, felt very big for me because um, I was either going to do kind of do the same type of thing again or I was going to do something wildly different. And um, either way, I felt just moving off of that one point for me felt very um stressful and momentous and I had a lot of pouting and <laughs> I don't know it was tough it's tough to just to figure out what to write but this is one like I mean I had to trust my agent and um and I have a lot of books that I want to write and I they're all kind of here in my mind and some of them are written in various stages of you know this book had been written twice when I when I decided to work on it as my second novel, um, I had already written it twice in different ways. And so it was kind of like my agent and I went into the storehouse of my, you know, the storehouse slash nuthouse of my mind and looked around for like a, a good candidate for what should be next. And this was the one that we chose. You say you wrote it twice. So was, is this a third iteration then you sat down and reshaped it? Yes. The first time I wrote it, um, I wrote an entire, I w it was kind of a crazy time in my life. And I wrote the entire thing without dialogue because it just looked odd to me on the page. So it was terrible. And I don't have that draft anymore. Um, thankfully, a very kind friend was helped me to not share it with anyone else. <laughs> That it was t that was ten years ago that I wrote that one, and then the second time I wrote, I wrote it as a screenplay, because I was kind of like, okay, I'm gonna force myself to write dialogue. I got to get over this craziness where I can't look at dialogue on the page. Um, so the second time it was a screenplay, and that is the draft. In that draft, that's the draft where Kate Oakenshield and Billion came in, and the narwhals in Lake Erie, and some of the kind of more fantastical elements of the Toledo Institute. And um, and in that draft, both the mothers were alive. They survived the book. They they were kind of friends, and they had adventures together, trying to trick the kids into loving each other. And it was very like romantic comedy ish. Hmm. So some of that is is still there. There's some of the the comedy, but I guess it's a little darker because Irene's mother was sort of a. Um... You know, I mean, the, the mother's separated just for listeners who, who haven't read it. But there's 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 twists and turns where people, um, you know, the, the mother's relationship doesn't last. Right. And people uh, die. People die. It's just all different now. <laughs> yes. It's much darker. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely. And it had to get darker because that's the only way I was going to 
feel like I was interested in it <laughs> enough to, you know, pour myself into it. But also it just reflected, you know, every, when you write a book, it's like you want to bring, when you write your first book, you can't have a sense of, well, I have other ideas, but I'm going to save them up for future books. To me, it's like every time you write a book, you go into your kitchen and you just get everything you made, you know, every dish in the oven, everything in the refrigerator, bring it all out, put it on the table, because you might not get the chance to write another one, and you just want to say everything you can possibly say about whatever it is that you're giving to people. And um, holding back, for me, is, is a, a big mistake. Uh, so I, I definitely wanted, when I decided that this book, I wanted it to, to try to get published and uh, that it would be like, have my name on it and be my statement about whatever it's about, that I, I needed to go harder and darker and, you know, a lot of the stuff that I write is just kind of experimental. You know, what if I wrote a screenplay? What if I wrote this without dialogue? What if there were narwhals in Lake Erie? And... But when you turn to it and, and look at it like, okay, this is going to be a book on the shelf. This is going to be next to, you know, Henry James, or this is going to be next to Nabokov or whatever. You then you have to start thinking, okay, like I'm not going to. I got to be rigorous and really make this work. Well, and let me just. I mean, I want to ask you about that. The the dialogue, the aversion to dialogue. It was a visual. You looked at the page and you said. Oh, this looks weird. These quotation marks and yeah. it messes up the page. Yes, it looked. Yeah, and I mean, when I say I was like in a crazy time, it was like I think now looking back, it, there were a lot of things that were kind of out of control with my life, and so this was something that I could just absolutely maniacally control. So it was like all of the paragraphs must look the same, and they must be rectangles of this size, and if there are any extra words falling down on this side. I have to take one out over here. And if I add a sentence, I have to just subtract a sentence and nothing can bleed onto the next page. And it was, I mean, it, it, like writing the, writing a book like that was just, I mean, to me, it was so satisfying. It was so satisfying. Wow. Like, I can make this do what I can make these words look however I want. And dialogue just looked a mess. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't good. It was not a good book. Uh, but it was probably, it probably, it was like knitting in a way, you know, like knitting is like that too for me. Like, look at all the rows and I can make them go in and out and, you know. Yeah, I can see that. I've always found knitting to be, I don't imagine how anyone does it because you have to knit one pearl too or whatever. And if you don't, I've seen people undo their scarves because they missed a stitch or something. So, right. Let me ask you about. Um, something else I saw in the, ja- I mean, I did read the whole book actually, but I'm focusing on the author's notes and then your your bio at the end. But um, but I thought they were interesting ways to talk about you know sure. the, the story. And you say that you're homeschooling your kids, yeah. And um, so that kind of made me think of George and Irene's parents in the book, their mothers, yeah. who you know, I mean, the book is a lot. If it's at first and foremost a love story, it's secondarily a story I think about uh, kids and their parents, in this case, their, their mothers. Right. And, and so it made me think that they, Bernice and Sally, exerted and kind of over-determined Irene and George's lives. When you're homeschooling, obviously, you're, you're striving to strike a healthy balance between, you know, really healthy nurturing and the risk of maybe being over-determining right. your kid's future. So, so I just wondered if writing this book helped you, help you find the personal right balance in, 
in, in, in your relationship with your kids as you're homeschooling them? Well, I mean, I, I think home, homeschooling can be different things. Some people homeschool to make the world smaller and easier for their kids. Like they're trying to shut out the influences of, you know, bad teenagers or bad philosophical influences or or whatever. They're they're making the world smaller and safer for their kids. Some people homeschool to make the world bigger. That's kind of our philosophy toward it is we're trying to give them more time to do more things. Um, so we don't have like a religious reason for homeschooling. It's more about um, like giving giving them more experiences, having more freedom and letting them develop their interests uh, more. So they probably have more contact with the outside world than school kids have just because they're out and about doing stuff all the time. Um, but I, I think for me, where I become controlling uh, or and, and where I overlap with the mothers in this book is the fear, the fear that your child, it, it, meeting the right person, I mean, in some ways it seems so trivial, like, oh, whatever. But meeting the right person and having that secure family life is so important <laughs> that as a mother, it, I do really worry. You know, like, what if my daughter ends up with a bad guy? Or, like, what if my son ends up with, you know, a manipulative jerk or whatever? I do worry about that. And the older they get, the more I worry. Um, so it, I think that is that definitely is something that I struggle with and I, and I still struggle with. Um, I, I think as a mother, I learned a long time ago, my son, my oldest child is 14 and he, you know, he, he is a very unique individual and he was a very surprising child all the way through and he still surprises us. Um, definitely outside the mold, off the map type of guy. And, um, I, I learned very early on to, that to parent the kid I had in front of me and not the kid I imagined I would have or that I wished I would have or that, that I thought I would have had. Um, and I keep on learning that. Like, I'm a book person. I love books, obviously. You know, I eat, drink, breathe books. I read, I write. It's book. I have 40,000 books in my house. And I have this kid who's like, he likes to do trigonometry and fiction, you know, reading fiction Ah, not so much. Like he'll read what I assign. I homeschool him, so of course I force him to read novels, as he must as a high school student. And he'll read the assigned chapters and then put the book away. Like I'm done. You know, it's like oh, but they're in a cave. <laughs> there might be something at the back of the cave. Don't you care about what happens to them? And, and then he, you know, it's like well, it's a, it's a book, you know. Somebody made that up. It's a, not a cave. There's no cave. There's nothing at the back of the cave. So to me, you know, having this kid has has forced me and helped me to grow as a parent, as a person, to really, you know, deal with the per, deal with the person he is and not who I thought he would have been. Um, so in terms of being controlling like that, I think I'm I'm okay <laughs> for now. So and you haven't you haven't that therefore mapped out uh, his future mate secretly, but of course you wouldn't tell me because it would have been a secret, just like it was in the well, book. Well, actually, the 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 moment that inspired the story, I was actually I have a dear friend who I and I 
you know, you read about this in the author note, but I have a dear friend who has a daughter who's five days uh, older than Bunny, and we've known each other since we were pregnant, and we really like each other, and um, we are very compatible, you know, politically and philosophically, and we just always felt like it would be really great if they got married because it would be so easy on holidays. And Yeah, and they've met my son and her daughter, who's actually whose name is Irene, whatever. I'm sure they'll, they'll find their soulmates somehow. Well, it's funny. I mean, I've gone, I've gone through that with um, my son when he was little and he would have a best friend and I would think, oh, maybe this, maybe they'll be together forever, you know? And of course, (laughs) I mean, where does that come from? That's such a funny projection because quite quickly and readily, you know, that friend disappears and another one comes along and the best laid plans of parents. Right. Yeah. And that, that extends to everything, you know, you can't, you, you, you can control really so little. And do you think writing a book is a little like that, too, that maybe you start out with one picture in mind and at some point the characters and the story takes on a life of its own and and what you thought might transpire doesn't or the character's personality, you know, actually changes in ways you hadn't anticipated? Well, I, you know, I'm now I, I wish I could be one of those people that's like, I just write down what they say and they just move on the page in front of me like I'm watching a movie and I just record it. I, I've always envied those people, also the people who say they get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and write for a reasonable amount of time each day. Um, but I I actually don't write quite like that. What I kind of tend to do and when I'm writing a book is it, I'm putting in everything I can think of even if I'm not sure why. Um, and stuff that the magical stuff that happens to me later on in the draft in terms of seeing a transformation is that I'll start to realize why I included things that I had no real understanding of when I first included them and everything start. I'm, I'm right at the end of writing a draft of a book right now I'm in the last few scenes of a book and it's got a an rehabilitation center for incorrigible fire setters a roller coaster and a lost Herman Melville novel about a lighthouse keeper. And those are its three main elements. And there are many other bizarrely disparate elements. And it's kind of like my, my dear friend, writer Jocelyn Jackson says, you know, when you're writing a novel, you're kind of like throwing balls up in the air and then, you have to throw them all up one more time and then you have to catch them at the end. You know, that's like the beginning, the middle and the end. And I'm throwing balls up in the air without any understanding of how I'm going to catch them, what shape they really are, if they're balls. (laughs) And then as you go through, everything kind of falls into place. Like in, in the, uh, in the Toledo novel, I didn't even put together. I knew that Irene had this, nightmare house that she that she would keep on dreaming about this dark house and that it was the place of immolation for her that she was terrified of this whistling absence at its core and that she she couldn't let herself get close to it and and yet every time she turned a corner she would be back at the center of the house with this chasm of awfulness and i didn't realize until far pretty far along into the book that 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 I was, she was also, you know, in, engaged in trying to 
create these black holes in a particle collider and that the black hole was kind of like that hole in the middle of Dark House. That didn't occur to me until later. Um, it's And it always seems so dumb, you know, like really there was a black hole that sucked everything into it and you didn't connect to the fact that it was like the other black hole that sucks everything into it. But it genuinely doesn't. You know, you put these elements in and then it's coming from some subconscious level of your mind. Uh, and then you just kind of have to trust that it all makes sense. Well, yeah, I guess that's kind of, I mean, it takes me back to when I was a kid, you know, and you're in English class. Maybe your son feels that way, too, where the teacher is talking about the symbols and you're thinking, oh, yeah, the writer wasn't thinking that. He was just telling right. a story. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and a lot of the things that, um, there are things that I didn't understand about my first novel. There's one thing in particular about my first novel that I didn't understand until I was sitting in a room with a book club a year after it was released. Uh, somebody asked me, why did this character do this? And I opened my mouth and answered it, and I never had realized it until that moment. <laughs> Nor did I realize that I didn't understand it. It was just like, Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> wow. I never thought about it before. Well, that almost speaks to, I mean, this idea that dreams don't matter because that experience you described almost sounds, has like a dreamlike quality to it where your mind was working at a, at a different level and then an answer comes out. I mean, that's almost like, you know, the lettuce moving towards you in the produce. Right. I mean, dreaming is so cool. I've always been very interested in, as a writer and also just as a human being, in the places where our human experience is undefined by science. So, like, crying, laughter, dreaming, these are things that we can't really explain scientifically why we do these things or why we stop doing them. And the, the boundary between life and death and the boundary between sleeping and waking is one of those kind of, to me, magical, mysterious areas where science and medicine kind of falls apart. You know, they don't exactly know what happens when you fall asleep. There is a, there is a, a, a boundary that's crossed, but where it exactly is, how you get across it, it's not totally clear. And then arguably the most important thing that we ever do, that we all do, that we have waiting for us at the end of our lives, we don't really understand death, you know, what happens in that moment. And of course, I mean, this uncertainty is the foundation of religions and philosophies and, you know, wars and all kinds of things that, you know, our fear of death, our, our, our misunderstanding of death. And so the, the kind of concept that if, if sleeping is like dying, because to me, those transitions are, you know, kind of overlap. The, the falling, falling asleep and going into that dream state and then dying and going into the afterlife that maybe those maybe those are analogous as well. I think in Judaism, I've heard it said that there's a belief that sleep is one sixtieth of death. You're getting a little taste of death every time you fall asleep. And it was in Moby Dick, too, which is that just confirms it. Like if you can get Judaism and Moby Dick, then you've got doctrine right there. Absolutely. And is it, <laughs> is it in the lost uh, Herman Melville novel, too, in your, in your <laughs> next book? No, no. I have to write that one before I'll tell you 
before I can tell you what's in it. Uh, right. Oh my gosh, what a task! You have to write it, and then that, so then you can refer to it authentically, even if right. you don't ever even quote it. That's right. I guess we've covered everything. We've covered birth and we've covered, you know, raising children and we've covered love and, you know, we've worked our way all the way through to death. So I guess that probably brings us to the uh, to the conclusion of the interview. Well, thank you very much for some very good questions. I appreciate the conversation. Oh, me too. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Lydia Netzer, who's the author of How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky. So everyone, go out there and get yourself your very own copy. And you can listen to more podcasts at our website, newbooksinsciencefiction.com. And don't forget to like us on our Facebook page. If you do, then you'll get updates when new podcasts are posted. And you can subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy on iTunes and other podcast apps. And consider leaving a nice review on iTunes if you're in the mood. And of course, uh, you can follow us in Twitter land at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf, your host. Drop me a note on the New Books in Science Fiction Fantasy Facebook page. Or you can write me at my website, robwolf.net. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Rob Wolf Books. In the coming weeks, I've invited Alex London on the show to talk about his books, Proxy and Guardian, and Cameron Hurley to talk about her new book, The Mirror Empire. So please stay tuned, and I'll see you in a couple weeks.